Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft, coming out in May 2010. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is all about privacy and security, and we are welcoming back Rebecca Harold, who is the privacy professor. And Rebecca Harold has many designations, which we're going to find out about. One of them is she's a CIPP, which is Certified Information Privacy Professional, which I am also. She's a CISSP, a CISM, FLMI, and she is called the Privacy Professor. And she's been having over two decades of information security behind her belt. She is a privacy and a security specialist. She's been named as a Computer World Best Privacy Advisor many times and also as a Top 59 Influencers in IT Security by IT Security Magazine. The program that Rebecca created that she's going to talk about with us today was awarded the 1998 CSI Information Security Program of the Year Award. And she's currently leading the NIST Smart Grid Standards Committee Privacy Impact Assessment. As a leader, she has been doing tremendous work. In fact, she has, since 2008, Rebecca's blog has been very popular. And in fact, in 2008, she was named one of the top 50 internet security blog persons. And that was by the Daily Nitsen. And in September 2009, her blog was named a top 100 science professor blog rebecca yes you are you just have so much going on here i could just talk forever so i'm just going to make sure that we talk about your website right away so people can learn more because i could talk for probably an hour about all the great things you've done but we're going to send people to theprivacyprofessor.com and thank you for joining us well thank you so much for inviting me i have a great opportunity to to talk with about all the important things with you here today. Well, it was terrific. You know, you did such a great job last time that we wanted to have you back. Before I go further, for those students on campus and for those people in the community that don't know all these privacy designations and security ones, why don't you explain what a CISSP is? CISSP is Certified Information System Security Professional. And what's a CISM? Certified Information Security Manager. And a CI and a FLMI. Um, that's a fellow life management institute. That is something that I come from an, an insurance background. And to get a FLEMI or FLMI, you have to pass 10 tests that cover such things as actuarial and statistics and security and so on. So um, that is very specific to the insurance industry. Well, I know you're working on your 14th book, Yes, (laughs) and you have done so much. Well, tell me, how is it that you became such a security technology person? How how is it that you became so adept at all this? Well, you know, it wasn't anything that I had actually set out a path for, and as you mentioned, I've been doing this for over a couple of decades, but I started out as an information systems analyst, 
so I was actually working on a mainframe at a financial insurance company creating CICS regions, and I decided I wanted to see what else there was to know about uh, the business, so I went into the IT audit area. I had an opportunity to do that. And as a result of one of my audits, I recommended that the organization create an information uh, security department. And they said, well, since you spent six months doing the audit, why don't you go ahead and uh, help create that department? So, you know, I got into it that way. I got into privacy in around 1993-94 when my organization I was at at the time wanted to put out an online bank, and it was one of the very first online banks there were. And at the time, there were no laws um, specific to online privacy, of course. So uh, this was something that I saw was a concern, though, because I saw privacy very early on as being something that you needed to address. Um, You needed that to ensure that your customers, um, you could maintain their trust, that you were doing the right thing with their personal information. So I took on privacy at that point in time. So I've been doing privacy and security simultaneously since uh, the early 1990s. Well, you are surely one of the first pioneers out there. So let's talk about what's what important issues should businesses be addressing right now. We have a lot of business people that drive by here in Orange County. What should they be doing that they presently probably are not addressing? Well, you know, personnel are using their own computers and, and their own storage devices, their own cell phones and smartphones phones now more than ever before, and they're going to continue to do so. And much of what they do with these personal devices throughout the workday is to use social media sites. And, you know, even as we speak today on Cyber Monday, there are over 4 million visitors per minute making purchases online. And oftentimes they're doing it from work using their personal devices. So while they're online, most of them will also be checking out social media sites such as LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter to see about the good buys that their friends or their contacts have uh, put out and posted about. And then while they're there, they'll do a little bit of communicating too. But there have been some significant data leaks and privacy incidents that have occurred through these types of social media sites. And most um, organizations don't have policies that really effectively address this reality of personnel using their own equipment and going out to social media sites throughout the workday. Most uh, of the organizations I've seen basically have policies that state that personnel cannot use company computing resources to access certain social media sites such as Facebook or Twitter, but they don't really cover what personnel should not be doing with regard to putting business information out there on those sites through their own uh, personally owned computers and and devices. Um, And also, the training and awareness is just not there in most organizations to address social media privacy and security. Right. I know some companies have actually started up their own social media just so that they can kind of control so to some extent, um, what goes on at least within the company and when we're talking about the company. And I think those companies do develop some kind of uh, policies for how they are going to act in their own social media within the big company. But you're right. What happens when you're on? I mean, is it is it really the Wild West out there? Well, you know, it in many ways it is. And I think a lot of people don't really understand because it's so new and it's so fun. I mean, I use social media sites a lot. I find that there's some great benefits you can get out there. You can make great contacts. You can share a lot of good information. But um, there's also some very significant privacy concerns that people need to be aware of. I mean, first of all, there's many ways that people can use social media sites. They can go to them from their desktop computers, from laptops, through their Blackberries, uh, through cell phones, and even public kiosks and airports and other places and so on. 
Now, second, it's also very easy to send information of basically any type to people on these social media sites or to post them on the sites, um, such as photos and videos, uh, documents such as spreadsheets and PDFs and any other type of information that you can think of. And third, social media sites on the Internet, by the very way that they are engineered, the way that they're made, they are public. So any information, including any personal information or other types of confidential information that people post to those social media sites, is basically now available out there for the world to see. And, you know, fourth, there's many online scams and malicious code on social media sites, and, and new scams and new malicious code are created every day. And some of those scams and malicious codes, the sole purpose of them is to find and take personal information that can then be used for fraud, identity theft, or other types of criminal activities. Also, when we talk about you know young people working at a company and putting things online that could possibly hurt them from getting another job, things that they say in their social networking that there there is no laws against others looking at this to you know to use for for maybe looking at for employment purposes. So you know it's kind of scary when we think of all the students sitting here at the university who might be using social networking to talk about their cool night that they were drinking all night and who might see it in the future. Well, exactly. And, you know, people need to think about the long-term impacts of what they put out there. And um, people need to keep in mind that when they put something out on the Internet, it's kind of like, you know, if you would pour a a can of pop into the ocean, (laughs) you're never going to get that pop back into your can completely again. As soon as it gets out there, any information you put on the Internet ocean basically is dispersed and can be copied and spread very quickly. And that information can be found, you know, months and even years later. Exactly. What about the privacy issues that that exist with Twitter? Why don't you talk to us specifically about Twitter? I know everybody's starting to get onto Twitter. Oh, yes. And, you know, I've been using Twitter since um, early this year, I think around February, and I found it to be a great way to uh, share information. I've learned a lot of good uh, research studies by the contacts I've made on Twitter. I've made uh, contacts throughout the world. So it can be used for beneficial purposes. Um, but, you know, the people that use Twitter still need to think about and keep in mind that Twitter is, again, a social media public type of, of place. So there's several different privacy risks. First of all, um, a lot of people get a false sense of security through Twitter because you can block people from following you on Twitter. Um, in, in other words, block people from seeing the tweets that you make or the, the messages that you post are called tweets. Um, and so people think that if they've blocked people except the ones they've explicitly allowed, then that only those people that they've explicitly allowed to see their messages they posted can see them. But Really, all this means is that now you've limited the number that can see what you've actively put out there, but there is nothing that stops them from retweeting those messages or copying them and putting them out there for the world to see elsewhere. Um, So you need to, people who use Twitter need to think and know that blocking their um, ID is not really an effective way to. to protect their privacy. Also, uh, phishing schemes are becoming much more common, and they can very effectively load malicious code onto Twitter users' computers. And the way this is done, um, in Twitter, you only have 140 characters. Right. So um, there's a lot of URL shorteners out there to make URLs very short so you don't take up a lot of that 140 characters. But when you see these little shortened URLs, you have absolutely no idea where you're going to when you click on them. And so through these phishing schemes, now people will put out links, and and, uh, if someone sees them and clicks on them and goes to that site, 
you can then right away have malicious code loaded onto your computer or um, that site can be a bogus site asking you for more information or doing other types of, of bad things. So, you know, the phishing schemes are really expanding. Um, hackers, there have been many instances of people who, because they've used bad passwords, have had their Twitter accounts taken over. Uh, and you might have seen some of these in the news. I think Sarah Palin was one who had her hacker or her account broken into a few times, and there's been some others. But um, these accounts can be broken into if the people using them don't have good security or if um, just the, the site itself gets a vulnerability and it's exploited. Um, also, people knowingly send confidential information in their tweets thinking that no one will be able to see that information. And in fact, I've seen a lot of people put information out there about their boss, about coworkers, and I'm thinking when they're doing this, oh my gosh, you know, this information is out there for their boss or the people that they're talking about to see. And a lot of times people don't have have that in their mind that, you know, don't be talking about people online because those very people could be seeing that information. Um, and also, there's, there's many applications now that exist that do very cool things. If you will give the applications your Twitter ID and password, they will um, do all sorts of neat things like making um, word clouds to analyze your tweets or to analyze how popular you are and so on. Oh, goodness. Yeah, and so people are, are giving these applications, new applications that just pop up and make promises of doing fun things. They're giving them their user ID and password for Twitter, and now then there's this completely other entity that has access to your ID and account. So they could be putting things out there uh, that you may not want them to put. You know, you have no idea who you can trust out there in the Internet. You know, it's you mm -hmm. don't know who you're speaking with. You think you're speaking with somebody who's safe, and they may be a hacker. They may be anything else. They may not even be a real application that may be a fraudulent application. So, oh, yeah. So how do you know, Rebecca? I mean, how do you even... See, I'm so scared to even do... I mean, I, I must look like I'm a terrible person because people ask me to join LinkedIn, and I'm scared to do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm really scared to do all these things, maybe because I don't feel that I'm going to be able to decipher what's true from what's not true. Well, and, you know, that's, that's a very valid concern. Um, and it is easy to spoof other people's identities and make it look like someone legitimate when it's not. And that's where um, you really need to make sure that when you're out online that uh, you validate who you are linking with. Like if you're on LinkedIn, and that's another social networking site that I participate in, and I found it to be very useful. But when I get LinkedIn requests, I do go out and validate that this person is real by looking at maybe their recommendations that they have from other people and seeing if other people I know personally have linked with them and uh, looking at their websites that they provide in their profiles um, and also just making sure that they're a person whose name and identity is one that I can search and find and look at some of their past posts that they've put out there to see if, it, if they are legitimate or not. But, you know, you're right. It, even if you have been linked with someone who's legitimate, um, if someone else breaks into their account, hacks into it, and starts using it, that's where you need to really make sure that you read their post, especially on a, a site like Twitter. If all of a sudden you start seeing a post from a person that you've been following and now they say, oh, I found this really cool way to make you know, $1,000 a day, just click here, and that's completely out of character for that person. Right. The person, then that's when you might think, hmm, maybe I better think twice before I click this. And you might want to get in touch with them directly to say, you know, you might want to check and see, is someone else using your uh, account? Because this just doesn't seem like something that you would actually put out there for the world to see. See, that's why, I mean, the people who've asked me to link in have been people that I do know. I mean, that's the good news. Once in a while, there is somebody I don't know, and I don't even think about it. 
but I, I guess I should, I don't want to look rude, but I just, I mean, I tell them, look, you know, I, I have uh, a lot of concerns about identity theft, a lot of concerns about fraud, and I just don't want to do this right now, even though I know that everybody else is doing it. I'm probably much more conservative or, or maybe paranoid about it, but um, I just, I see all this stuff that people who write me and say, hey, you know, my account was hacked or somebody has created an email in my name and people are trying to discredit me by using my, an email address with my name in it. And so those are the kinds of things that I think, how can we keep up with that? Well, and it is hard because there are so many new scams every day that occur. But, you know, I think something, too, to keep in mind is the fact that because of the benefits of these sites, you don't want to necessarily completely shut them off. But being aware and and knowing about um, the new and current privacy and security scams that are going on with them uh, really do help. And also making sure you know and, and keep in touch with the people who maintain those sites so that you know if they have any new security vulnerabilities that have been discovered. Or get in touch with them directly and say, you know, I have a concern about this one account that's been sending some suspicious activity and maybe you need to check into it just to see be on the safe side and make sure that it is valid um, traffic that's out there but you know unfortunately security is not a hundred percent and it, it never can be so whenever you're online knowing and having the knowledge and, and having the awareness of all these security and privacy uh, problems really helps you to stay aware, and, and that's something I'm trying to help people do with um, my monthly privacy tips that I send out uh, that don't get into a lot of technical jargon, but just makes people aware of current types of schemes and scams that are going on. So I, I think staying aware is probably the number one thing that people can do to really help themselves um, still participate in social media sites, but know the types of questions to ask and know the red flags when they see them. You know, it's almost like traveling to a third world country where, (laughs) where, you know, there's a lot of danger out there, but if you do enough reading about it and and find out what are the current problems going on there, you can stay away from certain things or be careful uh, certain things that you eat or, you know what I'm saying? It's it's that kind of thing. I think this would be a perfect time for you to give that website so that people, if they want to sign on to get your email, and that's, is that email something that they can get at no cost? Oh, yes. Um, it's free. I send it out just once a month. It's at uh, my website, www.theprivacyprofessor.com. And I have a little sign-up um, block right there on my uh, homepage and on several other of the pages. And what I do is I've created this monthly tip uh, to just send out to anyone who wants to have reminders and be aware of current schemes going on. But I've also created it so that security and privacy leaders and other business leaders can take it and just forward it on to their personnel and use it as a way of raising awareness about these types of security and privacy issues that all personnel in every type of organization uh, has to deal with, not only at work, but also in their homes. Exactly. And a lot of people are telecommuting or computer commuting or Mm -hmm. travel commuting. And so they are often, you know, tethered to their to their email and everything else for work. So even when you're at home, a lot of times you are still connected to work. So it's a very important thing for the business owners and the big companies as well as uh, individuals. We're speaking with Rebecca Harold, who has so many privacy and security designations, it's too many, but she is called the Privacy Professor, and she has over two decades of information security, privacy, and compliance experience. And she's been named as a computer best privacy advisor multiple times. And you can find out so much more about her at theprivacyprofessor.com and also at rebeccaherald.com. Rebecca, we're talking now about, you know, all these crazy things that happen. And 
What are some specific things that people should be doing when they're jumping onto Twitter, for example? What what are maybe if two or three or four important tips to remember if they're just getting into Twitter? Well, <clears throat> if they're just getting into Twitter, um, what is good is if they create their um, – when they create their profile, you can put any type of information in your profile. Again, you're limited for the number of characters, but don't put a lot of personal information in your profile. In fact, a lot of people I know don't even use their real name. They just use, um, you know, their pseudonym to put out there, and they don't put any information about where they're located because that's asked for. So um, be careful about what you put in your personal profile, and if there's something you don't want the world to see, then don't put it out there. And then when you are creating your account, um, you can think about if you want to have your user ID or your Twitter ID blocked. If you block your Twitter ID, that means that people have to uh, send you a notification to ask if they can follow you. So if you want to know every person that's following you and approve of every one of them, that you can do that. I personally don't have a, my Twitter ID blocked. I allow anybody who wants to follow me to follow because if I see somebody's following me, because you can always check and see who's following you, that I don't want to be, have following me because there are a lot of, of um, bogus Twitter IDs out there. There's a lot of, of you know, really shady types of IDs and porn IDs that you oh, just no. really don't want. <laughs> you might Well, I don't want to have it right. associated. So what you can do is when you see some like that, you can just block those specific IDs so that they can't continue following you. Um, and then just make sure that you know, even though there's an option on Twitter that says you can delete something that you've posted, Keep in mind that once you've posted it out there, it's very possible that someone else has already copied that tweet to some other location or that it's been found by a search engine such as Google or uh, Bing, and so now there's a copy of it somewhere. So be very careful when you're posting information online and don't hit that enter key until you know that that's what you don't care the whole world might be seeing. You know, Rebecca, the one thing that I've really learned in, in getting involved just on the Internet and email is that it's, to me, it is quite scary how often people push that send button, even in email, without reading it. And I don't mean like misspelling, because that you can live with, but I mean flippant things that people say that they're sorry for later or things that they think they're joking and there's something to be lost when it isn't in a conversation. That seems to me to be a, a huge problem. I'm, I'm noticing that with my clients, with, with people that they work with, with friends, people saying things. And, and I myself have had that problem. I've said something and, and it was misunderstood. And then I have to get on the phone immediately and say, oh, wait a minute. I was just kidding about that. Oh, you know, I mean, yeah. that seems to be a huge problem when people just use the Internet or Twitter or whatever it is um, instead of the oral communication. What what do you see as a do you see that as a problem at all? Oh, yes. I mean, you know, especially with Twitter, because you are confined to 140 characters, people put out very short messages. And so when you have people abbreviating and putting just little messages out there, um, that communication can be taken out of context. And also the fact that people can do searches, Twitter searches, and find information. People don't realize that, but it's very easy to... Um, be able to see the information that's been put out there. Um, here's a few examples for you specific to Twitter, and you might have heard about this, but uh, just a couple of months ago on this past October 14th, I think it was mid-month, um, Megan McCain, she's on Twitter and she posts out there, and I actually follow her uh, to see what she has to say, and she put a post out there that really caused a lot of embarrassment to her. And it also was something that made headlines. And it's basically something she probably won't forget, but she posted a picture of herself holding an Andy Warhol book 
and she was in her apartment, but she was wearing kind of a low-cut shirt that showed quite a bit of her body, and as a result of that, she received all sorts of harassing messages, and she received all sorts of bad press talking about how she was putting this type of picture out on a public arena for everyone to see. (laughs) So, you know, she said that she hadn't even thought about that when she put it out there, that that wasn't her intent to show her body. She was just showing what she looked like at home. But (laughs) Right. You know, so I guess the point is you never know, even if you think something isn't that bad or you put something out there with a completely different intention in mind, if someone sees it and takes it out of context or um, reads more into your message or reads more into your picture or your video that you posted out there than you than you atten- intended, that could have a, a pretty bad impact on things. You know, Rebecca, when we're talking about all these things and, and how you follow, um, who's following you on Twitter and people follow you on Twitter and you follow other people on Twitter, how do you have time to do all that? <laughs> I mean, well, isn't it just overwhelming Well, you're right. I mean, as far as a time frame goes, it very much is something that if you allowed yourself to just stay on it all the time, it could consume your entire day. And in fact, um, some people talk about how productivity within their personnel has dropped a lot now that there's so many social media sites that they're participating in. Um, just personally what I do is I kind of have a routine where I like to go out in the morning early and check things out and and put a few posts out there about things I think other people might find interesting. And then usually I get off of it and I go on to focus on doing other work throughout the day, and then I usually check back and, and see who's talking about what topic at the end of the day then and participate then. So I think it's something that people need to keep in mind that when you are participating in in social media sites, whether it be Twitter or Facebook or any other place, it really does make the time fly by much more quickly than you realize while you're out there participating. So you need to be aware of, of time management while you're out there. And that's something, too, that I think employers need to know that I don't think it's feasible in most organizations anyway to to say absolutely you cannot do any type of activity on these sites, but they need to provide some guidelines around what is considered to be acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I think you're right. When people are sitting there texting or they're online, you know, whether they're on their iPhone or whatever they're doing and they're not working, then you're paying for them to to spend all this time on social networking. And I think that's something that, you know, what do you say? I mean, do you have a policy that says you can only use your social networking like during breaks and lunch? I mean, do you have something like that? Or what do you think is the best kind of policy for someone to have? Well, and that is a, what you just said about doing it only on your breaks or at lunch is what I've seen some organizations put into their policies. Unfortunately, a lot of organizations I've seen try to just say no access at all, and, and it's just not feasible. People are going to use their own devices to do it. So I think uh, saying that to your personnel, you know, we understand that you want to use these sites, and that's your way of keeping in touch with maybe family, friends, and the outside world. So uh, give them some maybe time periods during the day that they can use it, or just tell them to to make sure that uh, they use it only a minimal amount of time or make sure that they use it in a way that helps them to ensure that they get all their other projects done uh, by the appropriate deadlines and um, so that they don't fall behind in their other actual work that they're doing. Right. It just seems to me that there should be some limitation. If you tell somebody, well, don't spend too much time, like you said, they get carried away and they don't realize how much time that they're spending on that. Right. So when we have some of these social networking sites, it seems to me that there are privacy and security controls on Facebook. Um, What about the fact that some people just don't even bother to use them? I mean, what what is your suggestion with regard to these privacy and security controls that are there and available? Well, definitely people need to to use what's there. I think a lot of people see those security controls and 
Um, it's true that those security controls aren't 100%. They are not foolproof. And I think a lot of the people that I've spoken to say, well, you know, I've read a lot of things that say that these controls, these security settings don't work, so why should I even bother using them? Well, you know what? Layers of security is a very good thing to use in order to protect your privacy. So even though it might not 100% prevent bad things from happening, if you can prevent a a percentage of bad things from happening from using the security controls, you need to do it. And some of those things are such as having a good password on your account. And what do you mean by a good password? Because some people say, oh, I have a good password. I use, you know, 8 to 12 letters, but is that really good enough? So what, what is a, quote, good password or at least an effective one? Well, a good password very generally is one that, first of all, is not something that people would be able to easily guess. And it would be one that I would recommend is um, a minimum of eight alphanumeric characters. Now, some people say six is okay, but um, it depends on the composition of the password. And by the composition, I mean it should contain more than just letters. Mm-hmm. Um, if you make it contain both upper and lowercase letters and also put some numerals in there, and if the site allows for it, put in you know other types of special characters like exclamation points and so on that helps but make it something that um, your password cracker type of tools that oftentimes go through and use every combination uh, every word in a dictionary or different combinations of letters on a keyboard something that it would not find that easily but something that you would be able to um, easily remember just because of the characteristics of the letters and the numbers that you have involved. Right, right. So how about, um, should people, like, when they when they go to start a social networking, I mean, is there, should they, the first thing they do, go look at the privacy policy? Or what should, they, I know a lot of people don't bother with privacy policies at yeah. all. Well, you know, I, they get yeah. in, they're excited, they want to do all these things, they don't even think about this stuff. Right, right. And, and, you know, they definitely need to go out and read the privacy policy. And, in fact, at some of the, the sites, uh, not just social media sites, but also just any website on the, the Internet, you should check to make sure that there is a privacy policy, but go beyond that and read it because there's a lot of really poor privacy policies out there. And, in fact, some of the websites have privacy policies that really aren't telling you that they're protecting your privacy at all. Some some so-called privacy policies make such statements as, you know, if you visit our site, then you are automatically agreeing to allow us to use any information we get from you in any way we want to, and that because security cannot be 100% um, guaranteed, then you cannot hold our site responsible. So definitely before people start using a website, especially if they're going to create an account on that website and start giving personal information to the site, go out and read the privacy policy and make sure that um, there's someone who has been given responsibility for privacy at that site. There should be some privacy office or a privacy position that it references there. Make sure that there's a way to communicate with the people who run the site. So if you have a concern, you can have a way to communicate that concern to the website. Uh, Make sure that there's a way, and it should tell you this in the privacy policy, that there's a way that you can request to see the types of personal information that the site has about you and about your account. And then that way you can always um, ask to correct any information if, it, if you find that there has been an error made within your personal account. And then also, very importantly, make sure that you check to see how they share information with other businesses or other third parties. Um, this is something that a lot of social media sites especially make their revenue through selling the information about the people who are participating in their site. So you want to see who they are sharing your personal information with and see what types of, of 
connections or what types of contacts you might be getting from third parties as a result of this. Exactly. We're speaking with Rebecca Harold, who is dubbed the Privacy Professor. She has written many books. In fact, she's in the middle of writing her 14th book, which we'll ask her about in just a minute. And she has a website filled with great information, and you can sign up for her monthly uh, email newsletter telling you about scams that are out there. And that website is? It's at www.theprivacyprofessor.com. Right. Now, Rebecca, you know, you were just talking about... um, how revenue can be made on the social networking. And, and I there's a, a new law out um, that deals with social networking and testimonials. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think a lot of our businesses that are driving by may think, well, if we give free uh, trials of, of some of our products um, to you and we give you something free, will you write something nice about it on our website? Now, Isn't that considered a deceptive practice under some of these new laws? Well, yes, it definitely can be. And that's something that, in fact, has been discussed a lot out in the Twitterverse or or out in a lot of tweets, the fact that now um, if people are talking about or promoting a product or service, then under these laws, very generally, you have to be able to show um, and prove that you actually do use the product or do use a service that you're promoting or talking about. Or if you aren't, you have to divulge that you are being paid or getting some sort of other compensation to be promoting uh, the product or service. So it will definitely be interesting to see how some of the posts um, are changed out there. Now, out on Twitter, there are a lot of companies who have Twitter uh, accounts, and so their Twitter account is very clearly a company account. So you can kind of know when you see it that, oh, well, they're going to be promoting their product. Right. Um, But uh, there's also a lot of just individuals out there, and when you start seeing them talking about something that worked really well or, you know, that they're using, then, yeah, now you're going to have to know and that's what a lot of the, the discussion is about, whether or not now they're going to have to say if, if they've been paid to give an endorsement or if that's just an honest-to-goodness endorsement because they really like a product. Um, yeah, so you don't know what to think. In fact, I was reading this article by an attorney about this kind of law, and one of the things that if you're a business owner driving by, you might think about this, that if, if someone does put up a post that they got something in return for it. They maybe got a free product. They got your, you know, sunglasses from Sunglasses Hut or whatever it is. And they say, oh, these are the best sunglasses. And I can see, you know, 3D with these sunglasses. So if they say something that's untrue, now the business itself can be sued for that for by the Federal Trade Commission. Not that they would for something like that, but if there are statements that are made that are not true and someone was paid to say it, the business may have liability. Oh, yes. And and that is a concern. And that's a concern um, for, you know, the, the personnel and that needs to be addressed within the security policies. But, you know, what's very interesting about those types of statements is, too, I'm seeing more and more companies having policies that prohibit their personnel from even uh, giving recommendations on LinkedIn. Um, just as an FYI to the listeners who may not be familiar with LinkedIn, um, you can have you can give recommendations to others that you're linked with on LinkedIn to talk about you know their uh, profession, their work, and um, how well someone does a job or does a certain type of service or activity. Um, well, I'm seeing now more and more organizations are not allowing their personnel to give recommendations to other people because they're afraid that that's going to look like their company is endorsing that other person, not the individual who happens to be working at right. the company. So so that's interesting. I know. So, so we don't know what to believe on the one hand because we don't know if somebody is getting paid. Of course, now that the new laws say you have to reveal if you're getting something mm-hmm you know, in return, whether it's free product or you're getting paid to do it or there's some quid pro quo. Right. And so that's one thing. And then the other side of it is if you do 
give free product and and someone does say, yes, you know, I got this free product, but I really, really love it and it really does this. Now you as the business owner have has to really um, go out there and see what are they saying so that if they say something that's untrue, they're going to have to ask that it be taken down. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> once it's out on the Internet, like I talked about before, right. you really can't get it. You can't be assured that everything is taken back that's been posted out there. I know. I mean, how can you keep up with all this? I think that's I think that's the hard part for people that they're saying, "Oh my goodness, I'd rather not even get involved because I don't want to ruin my business. I don't want to mm-hmm. do something that could could eventually come back to hurt my business or have a um, you know, an investigation by some federal agency. Right. So, well, yeah. Well, and companies actually are having positions, entire positions at larger organizations where they have a person dedicated to looking for information about their organization online pretty much full-time and addressing, you know, statements that are made about their organization that they feel is in, are inflammatory or are untrue and so on. So they do have people that are looking for this. And like you mentioned earlier, that's become a large part of the employee um, hiring process is going out online and even looking up about what people have posted, uh, who you are considering hiring for a position. So um, the Internet truly is becoming, and the social media sites truly are becoming data repositories that people are looking at for long-term reference purposes, not only about specific individuals, but also about organizations themselves and what types of claims are being made about organizations, both positive and negative. It's, it's just a, uh, such a challenging time, I think, for people with regard to privacy and security. We are speaking with Rebecca Harold, who is the privacy professor. That's what she is dubbed. And she's been in privacy and information security and compliance for over 20 years. And she's written... Wow, she's on her 14th book. What is your newest book? Tell us about that, Rebecca. Well, I'm releasing a second edition of my uh, training and awareness book. It's called Managing an Information Security and Privacy Awareness and Training Program. And within it, I talk about how organizations can effectively provide not only ongoing and regular training to their personnel, but also ongoing awareness communications and activities And really, humans are the weak link in security, and humans are the reason why privacy breaches occur most of the time. And if you give people the knowledge and the awareness that they need whenever they're working with information in all forms, then you really are making a very good investment in protecting the information within your organization and and also um, at your home. I mean, what I use within my own security and privacy products and uh, offerings is I always focus on communicating directly with personnel at all levels and telling them why they need to be concerned with security and privacy personally and how it can impact them and their family members and what they can do to protect themselves and, you know, once people know and understand why they should be concerned with security and privacy personally, then they can really understand why they need to, to be concerned with it when they're at work and why they need to help protect um, their coworkers' privacy and their customers' privacy as well. So what are businesses doing wrong right now when they're, when they're doing their training? Well, unfortunately, um, a lot of organizations really don't see the the true benefits of training. I think training and and awareness has kind of gotten a a bad rap over the years because there have been a lot of technology vendors who sell security products, pure technology security products, and um, there's been a lot of press from them saying, oh, well, you know, training doesn't work because, look, privacy breaches and security incidents still occur at companies who have had training. And, of course, that's true. Security and privacy incidents are going to happen not only through humans, but also through technology as well. 
but a problem I see at a lot of organizations is that really they don't take time or they don't think about what will be effective training for their personnel to fit their own environment. And so oftentimes they just purchase a package and use it as is off the shelf and, you know, they say, okay, to their personnel, let's have you look at this 30-minute or 60-minute computer-based training program and we'll say that you've had training and forget about it for a year until it's time to, you know, to have to do training again to meet the compliance requirements for training and awareness. But that's that's so ineffective to think that providing a one-time computer-based only type of training um, is going to really help your personnel know and understand and keep security um, activities in their minds while they're doing their day-to-day activities. Right. And in the you know, the bosses and the managers and the supervisors really need to walk the talk themselves. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of cases where that doesn't really happen. If you have someone just go in and do a computer training and answer the questions and you know what the questions are and you learn to, to make the right answers, you haven't really learned the real meaning of it. You know, in Orange County, California, for example, mm-hmm. 60 to 70 percent of all of the identity theft cases are really from unscrupulous employees. Yes. Yeah. And so we're finding that there's a lot of reasons, and I've been reading a lot in cybersecurity on uh, different reports that have come out, at least with regard to identity theft and other types of fraud, that, you know, there are a lot of reasons inside employees Mm -hmm. take things, you know, for money, (laughs) for profit, um, for revenge, you know. Um, So what what do you do about that kind of a problem? When you have people who feel that they're going to be laid off, they don't care about me anyway. I'll just I'll just take this whole personnel file or I'll just take this employee or I'm at a financial institution and I'll just sell this database because I'll make a lot of money for it. Oh, definitely. I mean, this bad economy has created all sorts of incentives to people to do things that maybe they wouldn't otherwise do. I know a a friend of mine has been a longtime fraud investigator, and he he likes to talk about a statistic or a few statistics. He says that, you know, there's 10% of the people out there who will always try to do the right thing, and there's 10% of the people who will basically try to to do the wrong thing, you know, the the crooks that are always going to try to get away with whatever they think that they can get. And then he said the remaining 80% are the ones that if they have certain situations that they're in and they see an opportunity and they think they might get away with it, then they're going to take advantage of that opportunity. And so that's why it's so important to have layers of security within organizations to have multiple controls to help ensure that you don't have these vulnerabilities from your insiders that they can see that, oh, you know what, nobody ever checks uh, the logs to see what I'm really doing during the day, doing during the day. So I know if I go out and do something in this file, I can probably get away with it, or I know that no one's checking over here to do this. Um, and that's where really training and awareness really helps to address the insider threat too, because not only are you helping to raise the awareness of everyone about what your controls are and why they need to um, have security uh, implemented and a part of their everyday business activities, but it makes all your employees aware of what the people around them are doing. And so if you have people who are aware and they see that somebody might be doing something that's a little odd or a little questionable, then that's when they can kind of raise that um, issue to maybe a manager to the security department and say, you know, I think there might be a concern over in this area with how some of the people are handling the checks or maybe how they're handling uh, the, the different system capabilities and maybe it's worth looking into. And so then you can help prevent breaches from happening with a higher level of awareness within your entire uh, staff and entire personnel. 
So when you're talking about training, and we've already talked about some online training, and I'm sure a little bit of online training is probably a good way to get people started, but what kinds of training should there be? Should there be role-playing? Should there be interactive group discussion, you know, with with problem situations? I know whenever I do training, and I've been a, a state bar trainer for many years, I always set up kind of role-plays and, and uh, group discussions of of, you know, scenarios of how would you manage this? I mean, is that what the kind of stuff you're talking about? Oh, yes, that can be uh, very effective. And, in fact, um, a part of my background, too, has to do with education. My master's degree is in uh, computer science and education, and I've been teaching uh, over the years. And also that's where my privacy professor came from. I'm also an adjunct professor for the Norwich MSIA program. And one of the things that's so important with training is that you consider that um, to learn effectively, you have many different types of learners. So that means that just providing one type of training out there to all of your employees isn't going to reach a lot of your employees because you have visual learners. Those are the folks who learn best through seeing and reading. But then you have the audio learners. They're the ones who learn best when they're hearing things, and then you have the kinesthetic learners, and those are the hands-on learners, the ones who really need to participate in activities. And, you know, all these different types of learning environments and, and learning methods use different parts of the brain. And so when you have people start out with computer-based training, you know, I'm, that works well. That's a good type of training for many types of people, and it can definitely be part of your training program, but um, you really need to go beyond that. And if you have targeted training for different groups and you have them participate in situations where they do case studies or where they do role-playing like you talked about or where they do uh, analysis, why that is a very good way to get them actually engaged and learning and uh, remembering and, and really um, taking the concepts internally and saying, oh, as I walk through and do my daily uh, work, why this this type of security control or security issue is something that I deal with, and so this is something I need to do. Exactly, exactly. Well, we don't have a lot of time, but let me just kind of ask you one more question. What What should people tell their family and friends about privacy to help them avoid privacy breaches? Well, that is something that's so important. And, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's very important for people when when companies are talking to their personnel about security, they need to tell how it can impact them and their family members. So they need to be able to relate security to all levels and aspects of an employee's life. So they need to tell employees that, you know, when you're at home and when you have your family members participating online, you need to make sure that you know what they're doing. If you have children, um, you need to know what sites they're going to, what types of information is being asked of them. You need to make sure that they know what types of information is appropriate and not appropriate to share on social media sites, and uh, they need to be able to tell you, the, the parent or the adult in the, the household, if they have a concern and not just let someone they've never known, never met before online, tell them that they need to give them information that's personal and that might reveal way too much about them, or um, tell them about the dangers of how people will pretend to be someone else and, and make sure that they don't make um, plans to go meet people elsewhere, you know, in an actual physical location, that, that all of that needs to be discussed and talked about uh, so that everyone knows what the dangers are out there and, and, and how to not be a victim to so many of the different scams that, that do exist. Right. Well, we will send everybody to your website at theprivacyprofessor.com and see if they can sign up for your free newsletter to find out about all the scams going on. 
We will have to have you back again. You're terrific, Rebecca. And thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's uh, been a pleasure talking with you here today. Okay. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy. Join us every week and find out about what's going on in privacy at www.kuci.org slash privacypiracy. See our upcoming guests, download our podcasts, write us emails about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 